Welcome to the Flex Success Podcast, where we teach you how to be less shit. Covering all things science relating to nutrition, training, recovery, and more. Who knows, you might even sprinkle in a dick joke or two. <laughs> Alright, welcome back everybody. You are on the Flex Success Podcast. I'm joined with my co-host, Lizzie, as always. And um, the man, the knight of the UK uh, bodybuilding scene. That's, that's what he is. <laughs> He's going to be knighted for his knowledge within within uh, human physiology. <laughs> Joe Jeffrey, mate, welcome. Thank you for having me, dude. It's early over here, so I might not be on, but I'm going to try and warm up as we go. <laughs> <laughs> You're excused in advance. So listeners, uh, Joe's actually Dean's coach as of the last, like what, six weeks? Eight, eight week eight, this, uh, eight weeks? Ooh. Okay. Really and uh, what made you choose Joe as your coach? Was it his rugged good looks? Mm. Fellow bearded man. <laughs> his love for dogs. Yep. His uh, request of individuals to rescue dogs. Yeah. And of course, his knowledge. Okay. And uh, actually, a lot of people were quite surprised when I took a coach. Uh, and the question was always like, yeah, why? Like, I don't understand. Like, you coach people. It's like, well, I, I want to be exposed to different theories, different thoughts, different applications. Uh, and one thing I think you do very well, mate, is uh, you're quite articulate in how you get across your message. And uh, that's what I liked about it. Except for when you say, you're right. <laughs> I, I never know how to respond to that when Brit says that. I'm like, I am fine, thank you. I'm, I'm all right. Yeah. It's, it's just like, hello, isn't it? Oh, you're right. Hello. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> that's like when I was in the UK, I'd say, I'd say, I'd finish my sentences with the word A. Like, you want to do that, A? And they kind of look at me and like, what do you mean? Are you, are you asking me a question? I'm like, no, 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 that's the end of a statement. <laughs> what do you mean? It's a question. I said, it's just like you saying, yeah. And then there was, ah. Yeah, it's like when Americans say, what do you know? Right? Is that what Chelsea says? Yeah, what do you know? Which kind of means like, how are you going or what's yeah. up? It's just, I'm equally confused by that one. Or so, it's an easy It's just like, you're right. You don't, it's not a question, is it? Because it, it, it is a question, but it doesn't, it's not presented as a question, is it? Yeah, it might feel normal to you, but it's weird for me. It's but you have a cousin that says it. You should know. I haven't seen her in years. I don't know. That's true. Uh, anyways, Joe, we are piercing twins. We both have our septum and nasal done. Just wanted to point that out. And, horrible, um, it? Hey? It's horrible, isn't it, the septum? Oh, well, I had a bull. You have a bull ring? Is that what I can see right now? Yeah. The bull ring I found horrible in the sense that it never sat central. It was always like twisting around. So I just got a ring in my septum and I don't even notice it anymore. Yeah. yeah. I, you know what? I've never even, I haven't changed it since the day I got it and I've had it for like 10 years. So, um, a long time. And you think it's horrible? I mean, getting it pierced was bad. Oh, that. Nah, it's fine. Oh, mine killed. I'd rather get tattooed for like a whole day. And get that done. Oh, really? No, like, don't get me wrong. It hurt, but it was only like what three seconds while the needle was going through. Fine. Yeah, yeah. but it sounds like Joe got his done when he was like sixteen. <laughs> well, I, was, yeah. I think I was like eighteen, maybe. Yeah. So yeah, that's pretty young. I have. Do you know what a rook piercing is? Shall I describe that to yeah. you? It's yeah. It's, ear, mm, for those listening and not actually watching, it's just this little protrusion inside your ear. And it was definitely a rookie piercing my rook. And what they're meant to do is I think they're meant to pierce it and feed through this little tube and then pop the actual ring through the tube, the earring, and then remove the tube. I believe that's the process. But this guy pierced it, put the tube through, and then he pulled the tube out before he stuck the actual jewellery in my ear. So then he was shoving 
this like earring through this previously made hole, it felt like my ear was being fisted. It was, <laughs> it was fucking horrible. I was like pale and sweating and it was real bad. So compared to that, my septum was an absolute piece of cake. Mm. I've not had anything pierced. Haven't you? Nor tattooed. No, don't. Don't, don't tattoo that physique, dude. <laughs> Speaking of tattoos, talk to me about this black arm you've got going on. Yeah, I mean, I've blacked out the whole arm. I need to, in fact, I'm going on this Saturday to get more um, fieldings. There's some bits where it's healed that's got some, um, like... Go all the way around. Mm. Right. Let's see where it's healed, like... Hmm. Little Michael Jackson, Jackson pigments. Have you done that because you didn't like the previous tattoos? No, not necessarily. I, um, I had a sleeve there. I got that sleeve when I was really, really young. And in many ways, I just kind of outgrew it. Um, and it was also really light now. Because um, I actually, I was about 125 pounds when I got it tattooed. So I weigh like, over 100 pounds more now. And it didn't really change the look of the, the tattoo itself. But for some reason, it was like lighter. It was like it had been like stretched. Mm. So, um, but no, I just really like the black work stuff. I saw it just on an off chance. Have you ever seen that Vice documentary called like The Brutal Black Project? No. Um, and I just thought that looks hardcore as fuck. I want to have a go on that. Uh, <laughs> I, just, I want to have a go on that like it's a ride. <laughs> like, no, 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 this is a commitment. <laughs> it's not actually, I thought it was going to be really bad, but it's, it's not. Getting your arm blacked isn't, isn't bad. It's okay. Well, you're definitely rocking the badass look with the, uh, I listened to a carbs cast episode this morning, by the way, and you referred to yourself as having an upside down head because you're, you've got a shaved head and a beard. Was that you or was that your co-host? I don't know. But uh, yeah, upside okay. down head, a full black tattoo and a ball ring. Won't bring you home to mum. No. <laughs> yeah, my mum knows the bitch, so it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so maybe we should do a proper intro, Joe. Who are you, what do you do, and why do you do it, for those of you that don't know you? Okay, yeah, my name is Joe Jeffrey. I'm an online physique coach in the UK, but clients around the world, like Dean. Um, I've been doing it for ages, to be honest. Like, I started coaching sort of before social media coaching was a thing. Uh, I was coaching ages ago, like when the bodybuilding.com forums were a thing and when steroid forums were a thing, you know, I remember getting my first ever client on anabolic steroid forum.com. Like, um, I'm still working with it now, which is funny. Um, but I had, um, a big love for bodybuilding. And I also found a big love for the chemistry side of things. I had such like a proclivity to, I was like, or a proclivity to learning. I like learning and I didn't actually do that great at school. It was it was after education that I sort of found that. And I used to write these kind of articles for my own enjoyment about chemistry to try and further my understanding because the way that I found that I learned best was to essentially write an article on a subject. And my girlfriend at the time, now wife, was saying, you need to put some of this stuff online. And I was like, nah, because I didn't do social media and stuff. It was a bit like that weird guy that didn't have social media and stuff, you know. She was like, no, people would really like that because she was competing in bikini then, but I was not really bodybuilding, but I was boxing then. Um, but I'd still go to the gym and stuff, but I wasn't like into it like I am now. I kind of found a love for it along the way. She convinced me to put some stuff online and I, and I did. And then people liked it, started getting in touch, wanted advice on how to do things. And it just kind of snowballed from there. It wasn't really until I met other bodybuilding coaches in the UK that I sort of were man uh, managed to go like, oh, I see what these guys are doing now. 
you know, oh, I, I just do that, you know, and then that's, it kind of grew from there, you know. Yeah, cool. You also would have been quickly exposed to people having uh, opinions that didn't seem to be uh, built on the background of learning, but rather just opinion. When you got into the industry, I imagine. Science. Too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I like, can you swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah man. This, mate, this I, podcast is how to be less shit. That's our tagline. <laughs> well, I, I ate shit for ages because I was like a skinny dude that was coming out of all this science. You can imagine how that went down. You mm-hmm. know? Uh, loads of and crazy emotional stuff. Like I remember one year, me and Jazz got this like death threat. <laughs> Someone was so offended by the stuff I was putting online. He was saying, you know, I know where you live. This is the, the address. And, and obviously was asking you saying, I'm going to come and burn your house down and, and stuff like this on, on Christmas day. It was right before Christmas. I don't know. It was just what I was putting out online. He didn't like it. You know, I, I didn't actually know the guy, you know, it was just someone that was reading my articles. It, wow. it was someone that lived in the same town as us. Um, strangely um, but but nothing ever happened obviously you know well, the uk do love to get to use uh violence as a means to support their dogma though i mean you look at football they, they love fighting just for the sake of supporting they must be british at heart <laughs> you're lebanese at heart that's the thing <laughs> oh so much violence in my life so uh you know you've made it when you get death threats so i feel quite disappointed dean that we haven't made it yet in the industry yeah i didn't do death threats man i was pretty similar to you i was like a skinny soccer player that was coming out basically telling people why i thought they were wrong right and then um and all i just got told was that i was an arrogant upstart that spoke a lot of shit and couldn't act and that was when I, I said to Liz when we first started dating, I might compete. She was like, just fucking do it. Because he was umming and ahhing about it for weeks. I was like, shut the fuck up. Just eat some broccoli. So, um, yeah, I, I competed simply as a means to prove that, I, that my words weren't just smoke and mirrors. Mm-hmm. And then as sad and as lame as it sounds, it was the moment that I competed that apparently my opinion became valid, mm. which pissed me off. But, I mean, it was good for us because then, like you said, it just sort of grew from there. Yeah. I think I needed that opportunity. Like when I did get some good clients and had clients winning shows and stuff, it's like, oh, this guy actually can do it. He's not just talking shit. Like, oh. you know, that was what I needed, you know. Oh. Now I can just put people like you on my Instagram and be like, look how good I am. Dude, <laughs> <laughs> so isn't that the thing though, right? The better you become, the better the clientele you start to have self-select you as a coach. Theoretically, yeah. the easier it gets. Yeah. They already have the work ethic. They've already built the body. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I'm no, like, it, I was a good coach when I didn't have high-level clients, you know, but it's just you don't have that. People think, wow, he must be amazing because this guy looks like this, but it's like, that's probably less impressive than this guy that went from here to here, you know? Mm. Yeah, For sure. absolutely. Um, now, what are some things that people ask you about or you see get wrong all the time in terms of training that you think you want to myth-bust or outline or explain? I think especially in the UK, um, we have this super dogmatic camp-based um, like training programming because we have somebody like JP is, is a great example. Jordan's like an incredible athlete. He trains the way that's perfectly suited to his morphology and his psychological um, proclivities and everything like this. Like That training is made for him. He trains that way and makes incredible progress. But 
then everyone else trains like that uh, 170 pound natural kid that doesn't have a great tendency to to be able to increase load linearly like these guys can and ends up just kind of spinning his wheels trying to just do top set back off and everything doing like six sets a week per body part and you know that is the biggest issue and it's either you're in or you're out because it came fashionable you know the biggest one was like training with reps and reserve over the last year um it was really like either you do or you don't and that is the the camp it's like is there efficacy in either approach like should you train to failure well sure and could you leave reps and reserve and still gain muscle well yeah like we have to apply context to the to the situation right and it just it's been a bit of a mess in the uk with people there's not or what's the word i'm looking for yeah there's not a great deal of like individual considerations for what they need to do it's like right push pull legs and we'll do a top set back off for four exercises on that day and and that's it but a lot of the things are, are very correct about it like you have to be focused on progressive overload and whatnot but then where do we get into the considerations of okay what actual dose of volume do you require where do we apply the progression scheme for you and your ability to progress how do we distribute volume because if everyone's doing push pull legs well you've automatically got two-thirds of your weekly volume going through the upper body you know so it's like what what if you've got shit legs you know <laughs> that that doesn't need to be the automatic way that everyone goes um so that is probably it just thinking in camps rather than what we should do and take each programming element right and say right frequency total volume that we're going to use per week um what's the amount that we can do how do we distribute it how are we going to progress and they're the fundamental basics yeah right. there's like a lot of things that i want to know that i don't need to know like i want to know how to change a tire and change the oil in my car because it's handy, but I can easily just pay a fucking mechanic to do it. But when it comes to exercise, you can't just like buy some random program off the internet because you're running into the issues that you've just described. So if somebody wants a good body, there's no skipping past understanding the fundamentals and learning how to apply that to you because otherwise you're stuck doing exactly what you just described, following someone's program that has two thirds of the day, uh, the week and the upper body. What if you have shit legs? Like it's not written for you. You need to understand how to adjust things. Yeah. So. That was sort of, I suppose like one of the main uh, things I wanted to get you on for is because like realistically you have your foot in both camps. You read a lot, but you're also got a high level of application with varying amounts of different individuals. And I think like a lot of the information that we as coaches get are coming from individuals that all typically have a method that they're selling. You know, like you could argue that, you know, people like Eric Helms and all that are kind of on the auto-regulation side of things primarily right now. Uh, you've got Michael Jutel, who's primarily on the, the volume progression scheme. So as people receive this information, they're thinking that they have to go one way or the other. So like you as a coach, how do you, just, how do you start and how do you determine where to begin somebody on this, like whether you're pushing volume in a particular progression model or intensity or whatever it may be? There's going to be quite a bit of context of their background training right so someone like you you're coming to me already an advanced trainee and we would look at what you've done before what the requirements are now and make somewhat of a guesstimation on where to go although we we can be somewhat aggressive because we know that you have this drive of progression no matter what i could get a little bit more aggressive with your programming maybe than a rank beginner like a novice trainee or, or even an advanced trainee but just hasn't pushed it as far as you or maybe 
Like someone like, um, did you see the guy I posted a couple of days ago where we did that absolute clickbait two-week transformation thing? Um, um, Mark Brown. Yeah. Mark Brown. Mark, yeah, he had only ever trained like super low volume until we started working together. So we essentially just started on this discovery period of like, let's just keep increasing volume until you get stuck, like until recoveries hit or, or whatever, you know, we get any negative feedback inhibition. And we were driving that volume through his posterior chain, super strong from the front, but he's let down from the rear. Mm. Um, so we were driving that volume up, 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 up until we kind of found this breaking point. And he's just absolutely blown out of the water. And he's recovered from it as well. So would it have been a good idea for us to keep the dose at, let's say, eight sets of volume a week when we could creep up to 16 and he was fine? You know, I know more isn't more necessarily because, in fact, at some point you're going to train with so much volume that you just push your muscle protein breakdown higher than muscle protein synthesis and more is less just like any vector of growth promotion right there's an inverted u response if you can increase the stimuli and actively recover from it and actively drive the specific adaptation between those sessions to then come back and do more next time then that dose is sufficient and acceptable right so i mean to answer your question there's going to be a discovery period you know sometimes it can take ages like someone like christian i've been working with for like God knows how long. We're still making very slight tweaks to his mesocycle because he's not somebody that likes to use volume progression. So we use load progression. And we use, uh, and I'm saying volume here. Let me clarify that. I mean set number. I don't actually like using the word volume for set number. The only reason I use it is because it seems to be the one people understand that. Um, volume is actually just like the amount of work done. Like the volume of water in your cup would be the amount would be the amount in there, right? So it'd be like the sets times reps times load that you've done in that specific movement would be the volume. Um, so if someone like Christian, we don't increase the set number. So we're constantly messing around with the sets that we have over the whole mesocycle and say, right, we do X amount of kilograms over Y amount of time is when you overreach and how do we plan that over the whole block? So that's the learning process there of how to have the most efficient mesocycle you want to have the, the largest degree of workload with the greatest degree of progression over that time right like the greatest stimulus with the most minimal sort of negative feedback inhibition so we don't overreach early we can progress you know because load is our only option for progress in that or reps you know those we don't have sets so we we might not have the ability to slowly creep up that volume but you still look at it as a sum of work done between a and b right so whether whatever progression scheme you're choosing you, you can say right i'm going to give myself six weeks i'm going to do this much work let's see what happens at the end whether i progress whether i'm stuck whether whatever you know and if if you get to the end of that six weeks and you reflect like something i always do with clients is every time i get to the end of a mesocycle i'm thinking right productivity efficiency enjoyment adherence all of these things what's happened over that time could it have been better because the people that work with me they don't come i don't work with gen pop and stuff like that they want maximum return just super important for me to be always reflecting you know could that have been one percent better or not did we do all that we could and you could just ask yourself those questions did i enjoy it did i make progress have i progressed in the right areas how was that amount of volume for me could i recover from it did i exceed that because another, I know I'm rambling a bit here, but another point to note is that 
fatigue accumulates as well. So you might have a super high amount of volume at the end or a low amount at the beginning. It's still a sum of work, right? Because you're, you're carrying fatigue. These like the hypertrophy process isn't necessarily acute in nature, right? So you're still going to be facilitating adaptations to demands from the past, you know, earlier in the mesocycle. So it's easier to look at it as a sum of work. So you can set yourself a four, five, six week block. Let's run this like, to get back to your question, how would we set this up? It's just a discovery period, right? Let's try this and see what happens. If it fucks up, great, we know that it's wrong. If it goes well, cool, we know that it's right. If, if, if it goes okay, we could have done more. We know that for the next block, you know, simple. I think one of the most important things that most people forget in either the discussion of whether or not you're progressing volume through sets or through load or through reps, if you go on that double linear progression model, is that the result is almost always still predicated on effort. Yeah. And that's one thing I think where people get lost playing the volume game because effort typically will go down in fear of fatigue because the volume is going up. Do you mean in week one, they're <clears> like six reps off failure because they know that they need to keep progressing? Is that what you mean? Yeah, there's that. Or even that they've got so many sets that they don't realize that they're subconsciously pulling back on effort mm. in, the, in the front end of the workout. And then when you look at these, these individuals talking about this effective rep concept, whereby we would argue that, you know, a muscle protein synthesis event starts to happen specific, oh, more, more particularly at sort of that one to four reps from failure is that a lot of people don't really know what a true reps in reserve of one is. And when they push volume too early, they miss the RIR because they don't actually know what it feels like because they're always holding back in fear of fatigue. Mm, well, you can kind of see that in someone's progress through a program. If they're pushing a program, you know, to eight, nine weeks and they're still making progress in week seven, in week eight, in week nine, then yeah, looks like that's what's going on. Yeah, almost always the effort is undercooked. If, mm. they're, if they're still progressing at a rate of knots at that time. Mm. I made a comment on one of Christian's posts the other day that was just a throwaway comment, but you know those comments that get like loads of likes. I was a bit like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was just like, um, I think I said something along the lines of, you know, pe people say they never train using rest and reserves, um, I'm sorry, reps and reserve, but all of their sets look like two reps and reserve. That's it. If you've never been there, you don't know what it's like, you know, and most people are going to have to have someone to take them there. Like if you look at some of the footage from the muscle mentors education camps, I was, I had a client go to one of them week before last, the weekend before last. Um, and they took him to failure on, on the seated hamstring curl. And he was saying to me like, Bro, what the fuck? he was like, I've never ever trained like that before. I was like, yeah. So when we train to one rep in, in reserve, that's one rep before that, not one rep wherever you were getting to before. Yeah, and suddenly realise that your volume requirements come down a lot. There's loads of these considerations around volume requirements, like intraset volume and the efficiency of the work done, whether the movement suits your morphology perfectly, whether you are taxing every part of the range. Like if you've got a row that massively overloads in that shortened range, for example, like the hamstring low row, great example. Mm. You're always just going to get stuck in the mid range, but you're nowhere near failure in the length and range. You know, mm. the profile is so uneven. So that's not really one rep in reserve when you just kind of hit that sticking point when the, the profile is so peaked there. Um, so that's when you need to look at each set itself. You can't just give someone an arbitrary number of sets without knowing their exercise selection either. 
Same goes for tempos, same goes for <laughs> of things like inertia or any sort of external forces. So, you know, maybe you can train with a million sets and your training is really inefficient. Um, wow. Look at someone like Callum, his volume is really low. and We can't really get away with much for a couple of reasons. One, he's really strong. So his nervous system takes an absolute beating. You know, and if you consider he used to pull like two plates off the floor and now he's got seven on there. He's got 10 plates aside on the hack, which is ridiculous because I was on the same hack yesterday with five each side and it absolutely buried me for nine reps. And he's throwing them out there with 10 on each side and a band, not reverse band. (laughs) That's something else. And like my nervous system isn't necessarily less efficient than his. So for him and the amount of, this is why sometimes using volume load is a great um, objective measurement. So two sets for him is basically four sets of volume load for me, right? And let's say our nervous system, for argument's sake, are actually about the same functionality, right? Our, our autonomic nervous system and, and the, the degree to which we can facilitate those demands isn't necessarily going to be different. You, know, you don't hypertrophy your nervous system. So that's where his volume is obviously going to be less than mine as a general rule, right? So volume will often come down, uh, I'm using the term volume, set number can often come down depending on the volume load. That's why I I kind of like to use volume load. It's not perfect, but when you have sort of contingencies on it, like rules to follow, like effort being applied, like good execution of the movement, like actually working within an appreciable rep range, Mm. it can be a really useful metric when Mm. sticking to the rules. Yeah, that's, that's a super important point because I, I think I've even heard you say, you know, like one rep of 100 isn't the same as 10 reps of 10. Yeah. You know, like even though it's the same volume load, it's not the same. So if... Because the first 80 are easy. Well, yeah, and it's just like, you know, like regardless of whatever you may perceive your maximum recoverable volume to be, that is going to change in the context of repetition range, effort, mm-hmm. movement pattern, you know, the setup of whether or not you are partitioning a certain amount of of your, your uh, set volume towards a certain body part. Like MRV is a shifting needle. It's not a stagnant thing that exists forever, right? You know, and like you said, like Callum's probably found out that his, his recoverable volume load is about the same, but it means that his set volume is coming down because his ability to, to put more volume through in a, in a shorter period of time is now far better. But Yeah, and programming for someone like Callum is like the most difficult thing. And we have to get really intricate with the progression schemes used because he's so strong. Outside of volume load, right, consider this. If you add sort of 2.5 kilo to the bar, that's a pretty high magnitude of progression in terms of expressed as a percentage. But if you've got 400 kilo on the bar, add in 2.5 kilo, is not really much in terms of like that magnitude of progression. So we have, it can't just, someone like Cal, we can't really have low progression because you know, it's so strong. Maybe we could take 2.5 kilo every four weeks. It's kind of naffle, like for someone of his size lifting that much weight. So there has to be volume. There has to be set progression in there over the focus body parts. But I'm talking like working from one to three sets, you know, mm. I'm not talking about going from five to eight, which is pretty normal, you know, in the, mm. if you're a normal human, um, so what other considerations do you have for then the superhuman version of Callum outside of load and set? 
something else worth mentioning that comes straight to mind. So if we consider the nervous system again, right, there's only going to be a certain capacity for growth. Um, and I've found, now this is completely anecdotal, but it does seem, you know, talk to people like Victor, he seems to agree with this, that um, when I try to grow a bigger individual systemically, it doesn't go very well. So what I mean by that is trying to grow everything all at once in an individual that's hypermuscular or hyper-strong, it gets bottlenecked in the nervous system. And although we can do it, it's very slow. Like, yeah. it's super slow. I found the greatest growth just growing one or two body parts at a time and putting everything else on maintenance so the nervous system has space i often use this analogy like the nervous system is like a bank um i think actually you mentioned this in your checking yesterday i was talking about analogies um oh no was it monday god i'm losing my days um so like if you get a charge to your bank you, you've got to have enough money in there to pay the charge right and let's say someone like cal that's mega strong him going in and training legs, he's got, like we said, like 10 sets, 10 plates aside on that hack squat. But that is like tearing the nervous system apart. He can't then come in the next day and smash a huge progression on a push day or something. You know, it's just the nervous system's just going to say, no, not interested. You know, this isn't like when you were doing 50% of this load and we could sleep it off and we could eat it off. It's not happening. That's too great a charge for the money that you've got in the bank. So what we would say is maybe the next three or four weeks, we're just going to take charges through the quads and then we'll get this great growth through the quads. Okay, now we're going to move on. Now we move on. You know, So over time, we systemically grow. And this is where having that discovery period is useful because I might say, so someone like Cal, his total set number for the week is going to be about 50 at the top end, right? Total working set number at the absolute top end. So I might take 30 and say, put 20 through the legs, five through push, five through pull, for example, and say, right, this is what we're doing over the next three weeks. Push and pull days are like nothing. You know, we, we aim to maintain. If, if there's a rep in there that you can get, whatever, cool. But we're not actively driving aggressive progression there, um, but we are through, through the legs, for example. That, that is literally exactly what we're doing at the moment. Wow. Um, mm. And, and then, then you're utilizing the set progression through specifically the quads. Right. So like on that hack squat day, come in and do one set on week one, two sets on week two with the same load, three sets on week three with the same load. Then it would be wash off fatigue, come back and start that accumulation again, but with more load. So we were adding load at that rate anyway. So that's not actually changing. So we're still taking the same load progression, but we are also including set accumulation for more volume and therefore more stimuli, right? So we're back to the dose of the growth promotion vector of training. Um, that dose is essentially higher over a long term. So it might be going like this and then down a bit and then this and then down a bit. But if you zoom out over a macro cycle and look at the whole thing, it's going to look like that, right? Um, it's just making that a little bit more efficient. We're not, that's where people get confused when they think volume training, they think, look, we don't increase load. But like someone like Cal, we're actually increasing load just as much, like exactly as much. If you can go in the gym and add a good amount of load week after week after week, rotation after rotation, just do that. Don't bother adding sets. Mm. But there gets a point like when your cow strength that that is injurious and impossible. Mm. It, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Like, um, is Cal going to go in the gym and put another plate on that hack squat? 
No, it's not going to happen. We're at that upper echelons. He's not going to get a lot stronger than he is now because you, you can't exponentially add load in the same way you can't exponentially add sets mm. so, or reps or whatever or frequency. You know, or, you, or everyone ends up deadlifting 1,000 kilograms for 100 sets. You know, it, it doesn't, it's never going to happen. So mm. being smart with the variables you have at hand and not being dogmatic like, no, I'm only going to do this. Well, put a limiter on it, you know? Mm. Yeah, for sure. Love it. I think, like, again, like this, the, the thing that's interesting and like, the thing you have, I suppose, to your advantage of understanding the psyche of Cal is that you know that the, like I said, that most of these results are predicated on effort, you know, that relative working intensity. You know he'll achieve the relative working intensity to be a true RIR of one to maybe two, so that then yeah. as you are adding more load, you still know it's in a contextual manner. Whereas a lot of people are still missing that effort so much so that they need the additional set volume to offset the lack of quality of movement, mm. you know, because otherwise 50 sets for somebody who's listening to this, like, oh, that's so little, I'm just going to do 50 tomorrow. So, no, it doesn't mean you should or could. You might be able to, but you also need to understand that, that that volume load and effort is still extreme. Well, people need to understand their maintenance volume. Mm. Figure yeah. that out. That's like trying to gain or lose weight without knowing your maintenance calories. Mm. How are you going to do that? a great that is a great comparator yeah because that is another vector of growth promotion isn't it yeah with calories it'd be like how much you do eat well probably as much as you can get away with without negative feedback inhibition right so without excessive gains of adiposity without attenuating glucose tolerance without therefore affecting insulin resistance without affecting appetite blah 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 you know same thing with training like how much should i train well probably as much as you can get away with and that doesn't necessarily mean more you know exactly as you said find out the maintenance volume and in terms of like that's a great point that you said about people looking at cow's volume because that is what i get and that's what people do with jp it's like what i had a client asked me the other day like i'm sorry someone messaged me on instagram like sent me a picture of one of my clients saying what does he use intra workout and i was like why do you want to know man like, it's not important i was yeah. like bro, yeah i was like nothing and he was like oh no eaas i was like no why not? Like when people say, oh, you're in such great shape, what protein powder do you use? Who the fuck cares? Yeah. I don't know. It's the one thing. Chicken? I eat food? <laughs> oh, exactly. What EAAs do you use? Well, he doesn't because he eats like an hour before training. So what the fuck are we going to use EAAs for? Yeah. Oh, why not? Why not? Why not? Why not? Bro, worry about yourself, man. Like, so that's like looking, at, like looking at cow's volume load. Like, you're not as big or as strong as cow. Like, I'd, I'd guarantee... Unless Jay Cutler's listening to this podcast, you're probably not. Like, it's unlikely that you're as big and as strong as someone like that. So mm -hmm. using their requirements is, the, is a poor decision. You're probably going to be able to do more. You probably mm -hmm. should. Right? And that's the, the, the JPism here because JP trains a low volume because he's a freak. Like, because he is so strong. Um, and as you get stronger, yeah, of course your volume requirements are going to come down because your volume load is going to be escalated within per set. Right, so it is that individual. I will say, just to throw a random number out there, I have found anecdotally with normal sized people, um, normally around 80 working hard sets per body part. Uh, sorry, hard working sets. <laughs> Lovely to space body, like, you're going to end up about 10 sets per body part per week, somewhere between. And to be honest, in females, it's, it's always a little bit higher than that. Um, for the most part, maybe Talking about for growth, right? Right. Yeah. Mm. Maintenance. This is another thing. I really am not a fan of progression models for 
fat loss phases at all. Um, I really see the point. Um, if, if the goal is maintenance, we will just train with maintenance volume, right? And try to take rep and low progressions there. But there just seems to be a greater cost to benefit of increasing volume, like set number through um, a fat loss phase. But it's extremely inefficient way to burn calories. And it's going to be, it's going to suck because you're not going to like it. Like bodybuilders don't like having shit training sessions. And if you lean, your training's going to be shit. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I keep smirking because I feel like um, individuals who read a lot more and understand the basics and the principles of physiology and all this stuff that we're discussing typically seem to do things in reverse to a certain degree of what a lot of the old school bro mentality is, you know, that it is like in a prep, you do more volume at the end, bro. Like, <laughs> no, I can do less. Like, why would I do more for? But this is the same for any sport. I recently started getting into jujitsu and there's like oh. these comps coming up and the jujitsu boys, they train so hard about three weeks leading into their competition. And that even up to the day before their comp, or I think two days before their competition, they're training like they're fighting. The instructors will say, Every time you roll for practice, make it like a competition. Mm. And it blows my mind. I was like, your risk for injury goes up. Like, you're all dieting because you're cutting weight like idiots. Mm. Like, they're, they're fatigued. They're, like, glycogen depleted. Mm. And bodybuilders do the same thing, but in... No in pain, no way. gain. Oh, my God. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, during lockdown, I did a series of, um, like, fat loss transformation things with clients because it was just an efficient thing to do at the time. And the reality is, I hate to say it, if, if, if you're an enhanced bodybuilder, the dose of training that you need to maintain your muscle mass is about zero. So, <laughs> Yeah, you got some assistance. So, you know, I had a lot of clients who were saying, like, oh, what can I do now that I'm not in the gym, blah, blah, blah. Push-ups. Well, I said, don't do anything, man. Let's just do some rapid fat loss phase. And um, I've got a few people absolutely shredded on these crazy – like 21 day models and great for Instagram because I was like, look at what he did in 21 days with no gym. People go, oh my gosh. <laughs> Just take loads of drugs, it's cool. Um, <laughs> More drugs, less training. That's how it works. That needs to go on the show, dude. More drugs, less training. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyone that wants uh, that protocol, no, I'm joking. Um, so, yeah, that. That is it. So when when you're in a prep, you know you don't necessarily need that mechanical load. If you're a natural athlete, yeah, that mechanical load vector, you, you're going to have to be all over. Maintain that, even if that means pulling down your number of sets, hundred percent. Yeah. Like you want you want that stimuli from even that one set of that mechanical load that do that, you know, and you can pull your set number right down to like five sets of body part per week. Mm. Um, On that note, I um. Because I started this new sport, I decided I don't want to grow any more muscle just because I'm happy with where I'm at. I already get called a man, so we've, we've got enough muscle. By me. It's, no, it's not true. <laughs> not and so I moved to maintenance volume. And you were talking about, you know, if somebody's intensity is low, they're going to need more volume to maintain that muscle. With uh, any push work, anything to do with my pecs, I find it so incredibly easy to get to one rep in reserve. And I just, I feel like every set I do is so effective. Anything above five sets for push, I grow. Mm. All I need is between four and six and that's my sweet spot. But I train arms like a bitch because I like it hurt. Like it starts burning at rep six or rep seven. And I probably have another six reps in me, but it just hurts so much. So my maintenance volume 
uh, is much higher for buys and tries because I have quite a few reps in reserve as opposed to training mm. to a failure. So exactly like you're saying, with intensity, you mentioned five, five sets per week. That's exactly what I'm finding with my pecs. Mm. But I'm just mm. not willing because I haven't brought a cup of concrete to the gym with me to train that hard with buys and tries. So mm-hmm. my maintenance volume's up. Yeah. Even like that, so anecdotal, have you found much variation in uh, like tolerable sets for a normal person, not a cow? Uh, across varying body parts? Um, ultimately, there's a massive biological individuality, especially in, in novice trainees, because they're going to have a different degree of neurological proprioception and internal focus to every different body part, right? Without even knowing it. Mm. Like, um, I remember years ago, I had this client that just had these massive quads. He'd never been to the gym. Obviously, a genetically strong body part. So it wasn't like something. No, it was just genetic. It just had big quads, big calves, but like not big, big, but like bigger than the rest of his body. Mm. And then I, always on his checking feedback, man, my quads are getting, my legs are getting so pumped. It's crazy. Like and they were getting vascular and they were growing, but his trainer footage was just crap. Like, but he was so like just genetically, neurologically linked in with his quads. That we didn't have to do dick all for his quads, like they were just blowing up. I've got a client like that now, actually. You might know Gareth Buckham. And like, we can't stop his quads growing. Like, they just when when he does no quad work, they they're still growing, just from whatever else he's doing, fucking walking his dog or whatever. Sounds so, like big shoulders. Yeah, yeah, that is like you. Yeah, exactly that. So that's what we've done with your programming. Is like we've tried to bias work away from the work, right? Um, but yeah, there's a massive discrepancy based on like your ability to execute movements. Like, here's a great example. Um, I've historically really struggled to get people to grow their lats um, because most people's internal focus and, and their ability to get the lats short is not great. Um, it's hard to do. Like, it takes you a long time. It's a lot of practice. There's a great deal of internal focus involved. There's a great biomechanical consideration there finding the movement that really suits your morphology to allow the humerus to jam into the torso you know or even whether you like laterally flex the spine if you have to do that to get the lat short or the direction of your upper arm when you're pulling and things like this if you're doing a pull down you always kind of pull out and you're never getting close in you've never really trained the lat you know and then getting people to try and do that it's hard and that can take a bit of a volume load and it's not, it's not necessarily the, the set number that's doing anything there. It's practicing. It's not practice. Um, but then, you know, there are people that can just dial it in. So it is skill-based. You know, this is a skill-based thing. And it's going to vary based on your skill and just your genetic, neurological, or even historical sports experience, like you mentioned. Like, if you're a cyclist, you're probably going to have pretty good neurological connection to, to your legs, right? Your ability to extend the knee. Um, mm-hmm what you've been doing over and over again on, on a bike, right? Yeah. Man, you've, you've pretty much just uh, completely discussed my, my life in a matter of minutes. <laughs> because I, I was a soccer player from the age of 4 to 22. And I remember squatting in high school for the first time, 140, before I even thought about how I could squat. Because you, you used know? your legs so much. Yeah, that was just normal. And, like, my quads get pumped without me having to think about it. I've historically had very, a lot of difficulty getting my back to work. And I have to be very internally focused to actually get those lats. And you know what I do when I row? 
I pull my elbow into my into my ribs and I laterally flex <laughs> yeah. because I need it because that movement never existed in my childhood mm. at all, like not at all. I did personal training from the age of eighteen to twenty eight or thereabouts, and that was one of the things that I found I had to like stop and show people like pull in this direction, think about shoulder blade going here and here because you do a lap pull down with someone and they kind of hunch forward and bicep curl it. Hmm. It's just not something that unless I think you've spent time building, you, you know how to just use, unless you've been a gymnast or something, of course, in the past. God, gymnasts move so beautifully. I love training them. <laughs> they just know what to do. <laughs> I think like, biomechanics is something that I never dug into as much as I should have done until like a few years ago. When I met when I met Cal and Luke, and then James, and then I was going to their education camps. Eventually, ended up coaching Cal off the back of that. Um, it was like a whole new world that I didn't know existed. You know, I knew what biomechanics was, but I hadn't seen the depth that it goes. Of course, it does. I don't know why I never thought about it because, like, look at the depth that drug education goes. Right? It's it's um, unbelievable rabbit holes. And it's the same in biomechanics. You know, if anyone listening is, if you're not, you should be a member of the Muscle Mentors portal, the online education portal. Unreal. You can watch a, a two hour long seminar from James about a dumbbell side race, you know, side lateral race, you know, and, and the biomechanical considerations and the execution and the tempos and the different machines with the different cams and the different profile. And, you know, you're like, whoa, this is. Models are so complicated, aren't they? Hmm. Exactly. And it's, you realize, oh man. So it took me like some serious time investment to learn that. But like as a coach, one of the most valuable things I've ever done is taking that time to learn that stuff for client programming. Um, you know, like how I would program a session, maybe historically I would have used X amount of movements and not really considered their placement. Whereas now, order and exercise selection are of such importance to me in terms of the efficiency of the workout like we could look at one of your workouts all right right this is where we're we get in the the last greatest tension in the length and range so we, with your back focus work and then and then we need to hit this part of the profile and this is the best way for you to do it with this machine availability blah 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 you know like i said the other day that walk through of the gym um that that's what we're going to be able to be able to look at everything and say right this is the best for this and this and this. And if you haven't got a knowledge of biomechanics, being a good coach, I think that does come hand in hand, but something that's not discussed often, you know? Mm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's, there's a ton of programs out there that are just slapped together that don't have any consideration for the fatigue profile of any of the movements. You know, you'll see people going from a hinge to a barbell row to something else that's just putting them in postural positions where they're just struggling to stay a lot, stay uh, upright, let alone actually figure out how to row. Oh, their poor backs. Yeah, for sure. But I think a lot of people looking at these programs don't know how to properly assess them. So they never get picked up as having a bunch of red flags. Mm. It's not only the best movement either, is it? So that example you just gave, like the hip hinge. What if you've got a really small active range of hip flexion? So you, or you've got really poor drunk, uh, trunk bracing as, as compared to your ability to overload the RDL. Why are you picking an RDL? You know, it's, it's just emotional, right? Why don't we do like a 45 degree hip extension? That's not the same, isn't it? Aren't we trying to mechanically load hip extension? Yeah, there's going to be some like isometric loading through the spine that we could recreate somewhere else, but that doesn't mean that we should use the RDL, you know? Mm. 
Yeah, not yeah. a bad exercise, but just for that person. But again, the yeah. dog, dog, dogmatism towards exercise selection or more so exercise necessity or the perceived thereof. Because mm. you've got to squat to get big legs, bro. Yeah, <laughs> it's a classic example, isn't it? Yeah. Fuck, I haven't squatted in like 10 years. Yeah. Not, not free well, bar. So not you've free done bar. squat variations, yeah. like hack squat squats. patterns, but yeah. never, never a free bar squat for I don't even know how long. Mm. Well, I built my legs on a leg press. And a cycle bike. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and you built your legs on a cycle and uh, yes <laughs> um i've often wondered on a cycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i've often um considered the concept of trying to somehow factor in for people that have issues with quads some form of like heavy resistance based cycling to drive sort of mitochondrial biogenesis and you know and honestly i used to teach cycle classes and i was doing up to five or six a week mm. only training legs like once a week my quads were monstrous. Mm. My legs tucked mm. from like hip to knee. BFR spin bikes is something that I have in a lot of clients programming. Mm. Mm. Just before I started back with you, I joked about riding my bike home occlusion at the end of a leg workout. So yeah, I got that. I stole that. Yeah, I'm going to credit Luke. He um because he had some knee issues or something, and I have a couple of clients with some knee issues. We've just been doing like BFR spin bike intervals to failure. Oh, man. You've got to hate that client. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be asking for, for filming for that. I've actually got yeah, Alex Connors at the moment is um is doing bike work for quads on one day and, and a sled push for hamstrings. Mm. And the cool thing about it is it's on know, BFR. Uh, neither of those are BFR. He does a BFR set afterwards. By the way, extensions. blood flow restriction training listeners, if you're yeah. unsure. But mm. like the other thing I really like about those is it gives you the opportunity to load more volume through the week with less eccentric load. So theoretically less fatigue, less damage. So you can accumulate the stimulus for, for a lower fatigue profile. It's fucking cool. I actually just suggested um, BFR training to a client who has a spinal leak. And she, when her blood pressure gets too high or when she exerts herself too much, she gets like pounding headaches for a day and gets brain fog and stuff like that. So yeah. the less exertion on BFR I thought would be handy for yeah. her too. So there's a few different applications. Not BFR of the throat though. <laughs> We actually <laughs> joked about that. <laughs> Be a part of the threat. So uh, we've discussed volume. We discussed some intensity. Where do you sit on uh, like metabolic components of training? Like we've got BFR, obviously, is one of them. Yeah, I think I definitely think more so anecdotally, but there is some some evidence. Um, here's the difficulty with the the evidence on metabolite based work is you can't divorce it from mechanical tension. So we don't necessarily know which vector is driving the hypertrophic adaptation, right? Um, but I would say, why wouldn't you include it if there appears to be at least some escalated outcome when, when it's there, you know? Um, and it's a nice bit of variation that you can put in there. So I would tend to, here's a really sort of rough example of what you could do. Let's say you've got six back exercises that you're doing over the course of the week. In fact, that's quite a lot. So we've got four. Maybe one of them you would do as a metabolite focus and you'd pick an exercise that's really suited, like a pullover or even a cuffed um, pullover, something like that. It's not singles joint, but it's got really short moment arms to, to the lat and doesn't involve a great deal of systemic fatigue. And you would just do like 15 to 30 reps. Make sure that they're continuous so you're taking full advantage of that metabolite focus and just use like really short set times. Sorry, rep, uh, can I fucking speak? Rest times. Um, to, so it's a little bit of that very so at the end of the workout, I'm just going to do like three 
In fact, Dr. Scott uses the term pump sets, doesn't he? This is the way that we do a few pump sets at the end on whatever body bike you train that day. And that could be included. You don't necessarily have to log book it or anything unless you're super anal. It could just be like, and it could be what I've done with some clients. It's just like, okay, at the end of every workout, if we're doing some kind of arm focus, we'd be like, just do a bicep, tricep, superset, pick any movement, whatever. Just take it to failure and partials, continuous reps, 15 or more. Probably wouldn't bother going past 30, but um. Yeah, that, that, that's the way that I would tend to include it. I think there's merit, but I don't think we can necessarily, from from a, an evidence-based perspective, say, yes, metabolite accumulation is absolutely associated with um, hypertrophy in and of itself, you know? Yeah. There's a relationship, you're saying? Yeah, yeah. I think we can't necessarily divorce it from other facilitators of hypertrophy, right? But kind of like, so what? Let's do it anyway. Correlation. Yeah, and, and we have to take a bit of um, an in-the-trenches anecdotal look at stuff like that and say, well, people have been doing this for years and it works and it's fun and you, there's no detriment to doing it, so fuck it, just do it, you know? Yeah, it's like that age-old saying that sort of like success leaves clues, which isn't always a fair thing to say, but like it does. And even that, the, the reason why I originally thought about the, um, the cycling concept is because if you do look at a cyclist that's a track cyclist, it's just all about power. Like their weight training consists of very low RPE-based strength and power work, and then a shit ton of volume in a, in a, in a metabolic manner. And they've got the best legs. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, giant, giant legs. Far out. That can be the next one. Occlusion, occlusion cycling. I think you and Mike Isretel will punch on over that last comment, though. What's that? Because Mike Isretel, I remember him doing this big spiel about um, pumpy sets at the end. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So we'll, he'll be sending you a death threat soon. Until, until he gets a pumpy set book, then maybe he won't. <laughs> maybe. Mike, not a fan of the metabolite-based trainer. Look, if uh, he, he depends. If we're calling it like pumpy training and some people can consider that junk volume, mm -hmm. then no. Yeah, I, I'm not but, really actually 100% certain because he is, he is typically discussing the progression of set volume with also an escalation or a, sorry it's not really an escalation escalation of effort and a reduction in rir mm. so he's really main he's a main driver is obviously mechanical load like i think most people are but i don't know about if he has an additional mechanical yeah uh, he he had a spiel about it once and he's a really big believer in you know figuring out your maintenance volume exactly the amount of work recoverable volume uh and sticking to that and anything over and above that is just eating into your recovery and um mm. Yes, yeah, so. probably agree with that because I would I would still include these sets as working hard right. sets. Okay, do have to, yeah, they do have. They they're not just like yeah, randomly do a few sets of abs or something. Yeah, get them pumping the dough before you go to the club or whatever. <laughs> probably still still counting in that total amount. Just distribute maybe. You know, we can say like two thirds of your work could be mechanical tension based in that six to twelve rep range, or maybe a third would be like that fifteen plus reps and that's just how you could distribute that working volume you know mm. okay. yeah plus you've also got to also consider the application of it because time is a critical moment that, a, a critical factor that people have to consider too yeah how long do you have yeah. to give to the gym like, just quit your jobs if you're serious about growing people just don't have jobs or families fools <laughs> obviously not that committed that's the that's the consideration to all clients don't sign up if you have anything else to do get a yeah. divorce <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, it's called priorities. <laughs> Obviously, don't care enough. That's the next T-shirt. Quit your job if you want to get big. Um, now, shall we do something you're sharing? Yeah. Although we've already got a great one with muscle mentors. Yeah, yeah. So at the end of our podcast, Joe, we've got we've got some questions for you. Starting with something worth sharing. But before, because mm-hmm. our tagline, mate, is how to be less shit. Oh yes, of course. Do you have a uh, a wrap up sentence or you know quick summary? Synopsis of the summary of how to be less shit in regards to programming out your uh, training. Well, it's obviously not working for me, but I think the um, the the general advice would be to follow that scheme that we put out in terms of progressive overload. If we're talking about growth here, there has to be progressive overload of all of your vectors of growth promotion. Right, you're going to have to progressively overload your training, so you're going to have to do more work in the gym. There has to be a novel stimulus. You're going to have to eat more food and you're going to have to take more drugs, unfortunately. If you're a drug um, If you're an enhanced bodybuilder. So if you're a good bodybuilder, no, joking. <laughs> if you care about your hypertrophy. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a bodybuilder that likes to <laughs> Um Sorry to all the, the natties out there. Well, did you see Bob, um, what's his name, Waterhouse? Just win the classic at the Two Bros? Um, he's natty. And he was, he's looked amazing. So there's still Natty's out here winning shows. Um, we yeah. actually have an awesome one, dude. You should look him up. Peter Hartwig in Australia. He, uh, oh, he, hasn't, yeah. he hasn't graced the pro stage yet, but man, has he got like that old school classic physique. And he, he's like 68 kilos, bro. Mm. Yeah. Posing is sick. Oh, man, that's beautiful. like me before a poo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, kilos is light. Yeah, but man, does he look good. And he's, he's, he's been that good for as long as I've remembered him. And he just, it's just so not. He's just such a cool physique. And Natty. Wow. So Wouldn't you love light. to see what would happen though? How tall is he? Sprinkled in a little bit of dust. Bit of spicy creatine. Spicy creatine. Who said that? Uh, Tom. <laughs> Flex coach Tom was talking about spicy creatine. I had to stop him and make sure we were talking about the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so how tall is this guy, the 68 kilo guy? I wouldn't even know. I can't get over how light he is. Jesus. I'm going to say Pete's maybe like five foot five or something. Okay. Yeah, he can't. Five foot four, five foot four maybe. Aggressively average in height. He would be noticeably short to the general population. but Oh, yeah? Yeah. Five foot. Like Critter. Oh. What's Critter? Is that five? No, because I'm five foot and Critter is not much taller than me. So they call it five two. Yeah. Semantics. Probably not the time. How tall is he, Dean? Uh, five nine. Why not? I'd say I'm pretty normal. I think Dean's on the shorter end of normal. No, you're five nine? No. Yeah, I'm 175 centimetres. Okay, I don't know. Whatever. I think that's on the border. What are you? Well, me and my wife are exactly the same height. Um, Do you mind when she wears high heels? No, I don't really care. That's a bit weird, isn't it? I think if a man's bothered if his wife's taller than that, I think you're a bit of a bitch. So insecure, <laughs> hey? <laughs> um... We're both 5'10", five, 5'11"-ish. Five, okay. Yeah, pretty similar. Cool. There you go. There more you go. Anyway, yeah, be less shit. Just do more, I suppose. Do more uh, as you can without getting into negative feedback territory. That should be everyone's focus. Don't worry about, should I use this volume? Should I use this load? Should I use this? Just do more than you're doing now, and you'll probably be all right. As long as you can recover from it, more load, more reps, more sets, train brutally hard, eat more, sleep more. I'm not going to say take more drugs, but there's going to have to be an incremental increase as according to the rest of your requirements over time. Unless you're already training too much and taking too many drugs. Yes. Mm. Most people are taking too many drugs and not training hard enough. Mm. 
you you when you think you're training hard it's it's not really hard enough you know and you could probably use far less like you could start at like three milligram per kilogram per week and just titrate up as needed um you don't most people are starting at like 20 milligram per kilogram per week now which is insane um and that's not even a joke that is like in the uk that is the standard sort of amount that people are starting their blasts with um I would never, I wouldn't even creep up that high. In fact, I, I never go over like 16, 17 milligrams per kilogram per week with a client. Mm. And, you know, I don't have trouble growing my clients either. So I just wonder why, you know, why this is necessary. Well, that's the thing. You've said it. It isn't necessary. It's just that people are looking for the opportunity to get gains where they haven't, for lack of a better term, earned them. Well, if effort. some is good, more is better, right? Until a point. Mm. It's just like training. Yeah. Like more absolutely does more until it doesn't, you know, which is, which is probably like in my experience, again, purely anecdote, things do start going wrong around that 20, between 20 and 30 milligram per kilogram per week is where that toxicity load starts getting past that point of myotrophic benefit and you're left in the weeds, you know? Mm. Yeah. Well, before we get too much into drugs, we mm. should move on to something worth sharing. So something worth sharing can be anything you like, Joe. Most people give us like a, a book that they've read recently or a movie that they've watched, but it can be like the Muscle Mentors membership that you mentioned or something else in between. Oh, something worth sharing. Take your yeah. shirt off. We can just share that with our listeners. <laughs> hey. <laughs> That'll be the next check-in. He says, next, next check-in. Next check-in will be like... This is a Das Gym t-shirt. I want to shout out to, to Das Gym in Vienna um, and my boy Tom Evans, who's competing in a month over there. Nice. Vienna is a very pretty city. Isn't it? Mm. Mm. Have you been to Vienna? Yeah. We only spent like two days maybe there, three days. Yeah, it was a drive through. Man, we actually, we, we went through the city for a bit and then we drove maybe 30 minutes out somewhere in Vienna and we stayed with this couple and the, uh, the husband was an artist who had bought an original Banksy with three friends. A Banksy uh, stencil. No, no, no. He bought the no. Banksy. Yeah, it was a cardboard one of, um, what were they? Like uh, astronauts, I think? No, no the smiley face dudes standing next to each other. And oh, then yeah, because yeah. he was an artist, they stenciled it, stole it. Oh, like, that's right. right. Yeah. And then they kept on it. They bought it for $200. Yeah, 200 euro. For, yeah, 200 euro. Sold it for 60,000 euro. He made uh, a killer. Between four of them. But no one wanted to buy it. Apparently, this was like one of his This is first. when Banksy was nothing. Yeah. yeah. And he had these... He had these um... You know Banksy, Joe? Yeah, we went to a Banksy art exhibition in Amsterdam. Oh, I love him. Uh, it was so cool, That's man. Cool. So we stayed there and it was, uh, it was a really cool house. And they had an Australian Shepherd, which was awesome. Yeah, we, we spooned a lot with that dog. <laughs> well, mainly. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, she was beautiful. Um, all right. What's your something worth sharing? I think we, we derailed <laughs> Yeah, if you want to get educated, the Muscle Mentors portal is good. And that's that's complete like co-sign because I'm not on there. In fact, I think they've got one seminar I did on birth control on there, but I don't make money off the site or anything. If you want to go biomechanics, go there. However, something worth sharing, if you want to sort of just absolutely switch off and maybe have a laugh, listen to Carbscast. Um, check that out because it's quite funny. If you like, unless you don't get like English humor, then don't listen to it because it wouldn't be funny at all. Yeah, so no Americans listen to it. Just, I actually don't get distra- English humor. Yeah. I, I, yeah, but I actually thought it was quite funny. I love English humor. I don't. Just very sarcastic, I think. And the thing is, me and Christian are best mates, like, known each other a long time, know each other inside out. 
and it's just funny. I just love, we get such a good, like, people message us like, man, Carl's Cast like, makes my day. I don't know how, but if you want to switch off and have a laugh, listen to that. It's, <laughs> it's funny. I love it. Uh, Dean. All right, we've got three, or well, normally three, but two, two rapid-fire questions. What's one thing you've changed your mind on recently? Oh, dude, I've changed my mind on stuff all the time. Is it that um, our orange does not, in fact, belong in chocolate? No. Fuck, come on now. You're wrong. No. I like orange. I like chocolate, just not together. I love orange and chocolate now. I'm still gearing up to send you some Montezuma. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort that out. Which is a Mexican restaurant here on the Gold Coast. <laughs> yeah, not a good one, though. If you ever come to Australia, don't go to Montezuma. It's yeah. A, it's a shit Mexican restaurant. That's, um, it's made in the UK. It's made not far from us. Montezuma's chocolate. Mm. Yeah, I, I heard about this orange chocolate situation and I wasn't pleased. Nearly cancelled your podcast, actually. Bullshit. Have you not, do you not like chocolate orange? Like Terry's, do you get Terry's chocolate orange in Australia? I don't know about Terry's, but I, no. I just don't think citrus belongs in desserts in general. What about strawberries and chocolate? No, nah, that's a it's berry. Like citrus, I guess. Yeah, yeah no. Nah. I don't know about Christmas Day waking up to a Terry's chocolate orange in the stocking. I fucking hate <laughs> Christmas, Joe. This is not selling it for me. Christmas is the worst. I love Christmas. She's <laughs> a favorite part of the year. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Repulsive. Um, that's funny. One of her other questions was going to be when, how did you find out that Santa wasn't real? Oh, yeah. Seems you love Christmas. I actually remember this happening. <laughs> um, I remember I was at my nan's house with my mum, and I just kind of said as like a throwaway comment, like, yeah, I know, I know Santa isn't real or whatever. My mum was like, yeah. And I was like, because I was just like joking. Oh. <laughs> How old were you? How old was I? Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, too, I was too young, actually. I, I was too young to stop believing in Santa. Yeah. Um, I was quite annoyed by that. Because um, I, I think I was fucking being moody about it because I wanted her to be like, oh no, he is, you know. I think Still fishing like, for it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well I was like seven or eight, I remember it too. My dad pretty much said it in a similar way. I honestly have no idea. Really? I'm- it's weird though, like is there some pamphlet that parents get uh at the conception of their child that these says are- these are the lies. <laughs> We've got Santa, the Easter Bunny, the Tooth Fairy. Like, we just kind of all grow up knowing that when you have a kid, these are the lies that you have to follow on with. It is weird. It's so strange. It's just bizarre. Um, what was the question? Something I've changed my mind on. Um, yeah. Let me think. I've changed my mind on stuff. So I've actually been um, criticised as a coach for changing my mind on stuff before. That's why it kind of rings a bell because... Because I have changed my mind on stuff a lot, but really I'm just quite, I like to say open to new, I don't ever want to be emotionally connected to an idea. Because you know, if, if, something, if something is presented that I disagree with, but there's sufficient evidence to support it, then it, it is what it is, right? Then I have to change my mind. Yeah, probably, probably what we've discussed today, probably training, because I've been religious with training <laughs> in the past. Because of growing up, looking up to Dorian, I just automatically trained like Dorian. And then there's a culture of low volume in, in the UK and through trial and error and it, me just never really getting much from those exposures to volume. I, I eventually 
changed my mind on it and actually made great progress. And it's not about high or low volume, it's just about a volume requirement, you know, for, for the individual. Um, because I do have clients that train with super low volume, like we kept giving the example of Cal. He does like, fuck all compared to me, you know, but it, it's about a requirement, right? So probably that, probably just um, realizing again that there's a greater individual consideration. Mm. What's the next one? What food combo would you like to ban? Not chocolate. Oh, yeah, chocolate. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, sucks. Me and Christian argue about this. <laughs> oh, I agree <laughs> with you there. Yeah, you know mint what? Is for toothpaste. toothpaste. I I enjoy a choc mint. Dean put uh, choc mint protein powder through what was it? Your rice pudding? The other yeah, day? last night. Yeah, through his rice pudding. So the problem is though, right? So I like oh, yeah. choc mint, but it doesn't really go on a pudding with berries, no. right? And then I, I fucked up and didn't order way quick enough. So I'm left with just choc mint at the moment for the next few days. So I'm, I'm exclusively on cream of rice choc mint. I noticed today we were out of protein powder. Yeah. yeah. Which I'm a bit dirty about, to be honest, because I don't want to eat it every night. Yeah, that's the worst. You've got to have a good one. The, the best way for cream of rice is um, the Man Sports lemon um, cream cheesecake. Mm. Citrus? No, sorry, disagree. <laughs> You know, we actually don't, get, we don't actually get cream of rice in Australia. Rice flour, is it? Yeah, you just have to buy rice flour and start from the beginning. Yeah, I buy, I buy rice flour as well because it's so much cheaper. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, if I ever want a terrible way, I'll definitely look into that lemon thing you mentioned. Yeah, that'd be good and that'd be like a uh, cake. You know, <laughs> the ways that I've got in the house right now are, are lemon cheesecake and chocolate orange. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's good if we're ever in, you'll never never need to support her uh, way binge. No, I, I will not be visiting your way cupboard. <laughs> it's safe. Now, Joe, I showed you this game. Oh, yeah. The question is, is which one do we ask? Can I eat a mini money mower? Yeah. I think this one this one is relevant to him as a British man, so we'll ask that and then we'll put any mini money mower the next one. Okay. Uh, I don't want to say it out loud because I know the eeny, meeny, miny, moe version with a word well, don't say that it. shouldn't just, be expressed. Just, no, we'll change the word. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a monkey by the toe. If it squirts, let it go. This one. Thank you. All right. All right. I'll read this one. Joe, would you rather A, have sex with the queen or B, have sex with your next door neighbor? The queen? I'd love to have sex with the queen. Would you? I, I tell everyone that I'm buying the queen. No, <laughs> One second, my dog's scratching the door. Let me just open this. Uh huh. <laughs> your dog? Do you yeah. say? Yeah, scratching the door. I would love to meet your dog. Where are you? <laughs> I can see the tail. Is this the one that got into a fight? There's both of them. Oh, hello. <laughs> you guys have cute bums. <laughs> Let me see your faces now. Mm. Oh, Hunter, Hunter, come here. <laughs> <laughs> Hi puppies! <laughs> Hi! <laughs> oh, they're beautiful. I'll get you can meet Ruben later. Mm. They are actually best friends, they just disagree sometimes. <laughs> Scratching the door, they don't even want to commit. It's been annoying. <laughs> Cuties. All right, second, would you rather you read it? Pry off your thumbnail with a fork or put a toothpick under your big toenail and kick a wall. Which one would probably the which would be the less like annoying to deal with afterwards? 
Depends if the toothpick is still uh, pinchable to pull out. Yeah, probably that. If I could just remove the toothpick afterwards, because um, then I'd still be somewhat intact. It'd just be like a flesh wound. I wouldn't have to wait for the nail to grow back. It would be. It would go in quite it would far. Be way more difficult to pull your own tone, uh, own fingernail off. I reckon. I. I'll tell you something funny, right? That I discovered the other day. That's so stupid. I did. My my wife was somehow we got into this conversation that like fingernails grow from like the bed up, and for some reason I had just always assumed that your fingernails didn't grow only that like bit at the end did. I like why? I was like, <laughs> and then I was thinking about it. I was like, of course, because no one's ever told me that before. You thought they grew from the tip? <laughs> yeah, literally, I thought it just grew like at the end. That's like, the dead part. <laughs> it does look like that, though. No, but you, you... I don't know if it is. The, is it the dead part, though, or is it just white because it has no, no skin No, no, it's definitely dead. It's got no feeling. It doesn't grow isn't all nail dead? Well, not where it grows, not like the, the base it's of it. Underneath the skin. That's like saying, yes, hair's dead, but the hair root where it grows from isn't dead. They're right? a weird thing of thumbnail. Like, if you think, like, there's not that much underneath there, and yet it somehow just grows out of nowhere. In it, what is it for as well? What do we do with it these days? Well, That's true. What are they for? well, because they they give I think like a harder support to your fingers that need to be like oh, there's bone there, so maybe yeah, oh, who knows? Yeah, what what is their purpose? Oh, okay, look, we're all just sitting here now like this. If anyone's watching on YouTube, like because <laughs> you can itch yourself with them. Fingernails are really handy to like pick off a label which I'm sure was considered in the evolutionary process. Mm. Um, <laughs> Maybe that was it, was to scratch messages into stones. But all sorts of things. I don't know, I use my fingernails all the time. Yeah, I don't really know what purpose they serve. I've lost my big toe twice. Not my big toe. Big I, toe I, didn't, I didn't grow it back like a lizard. <laughs> just my toe now. And uh, it did nothing. I didn't, I didn't lose any. Nothing happened. Yeah, I hate thinking about your toe without a nail. It grosses me out so bad. I had one pulled off and I, I watched it as they did it. Because it was, it was fucked up, and then they needled my big toe, bro. Like three big ass needles in, and then she. This is Australian medical uh, quality. She got a rubber band, and then rubber banded off my toe at the base, so that all of the the local anaesthetic would stay in there. I'm like, surely you've got a better tourniquet than a rubber band, you know? And then, and then, yeah, she literally just grabbed my big toenail with pliers, essentially, and just rolled it off like it didn't even attach to it. it That's so disgusting. So yeah. All because, all because I wanted to go to England and play football. How'd that turn out for you, you loser? <laughs> you have been to England then? I've been three, three times. Yeah. Never, have you ever, you ever been to Northampton? Um, I'm not sure. I was, when I was there by myself, I spent most of my time in Cambridge and then around Colchester a little bit. You're right. Yeah. And uh, I don't think, I think we, I think we momentarily, I went on a couple of like football tours initially. And then I went over there by myself and um, trialed at Cambridge at the youth team. But hmm. As interesting as your life as a child is, maybe we should uh, do a wrap-up. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> if people wanted to find you, Joe, where would they find you? Um, my Instagram, I've got to remind myself of the name, is... Instaho.joe. The one. Yeah. It's, I forget because I, I don't do the social media thing, so... Um, Joe Jeffrey Coaching is my at, if that's what they call them. It's called a handle. The hand, is that what it is? Okay, my handle is Joe Jeffrey Coaching. Jeffrey spelled J-E-F-F-E-R-Y as well. Often gets mistaken for R-E-Y. And my website is the same, joejeffreycoaching.com. 
find podcasts and articles and stuff there. If you just search my name in the podcast app as well on, on um, iTunes or whatever it is, I've done literally hundreds of podcasts, hundreds and hundreds. So if you ever want to listen to stuff, I've got podcasts on like growth hormone, on safer use models of steroids, of training, of everything you can imagine, and loads of drivel on carbs cast as well. So plenty of stuff on there if people want to check me out. Love it. Beautiful. Perfect. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast today. It was fun to actually meet you because I've heard a lot about you in the however many... About, I don't talk about him ever. All the time. Joe this, Joe, no, not really. It's like this but, motherfucker said he was giving me more carbs and he gave me more carrots. <laughs> <laughs> no, I sometimes I overhear your check-in to Dean because um, we've got a new TV and we've been watching stuff like YouTube and mm. your check-ins on the TV. I so I feel like I know you, but now I actually do. Well, thank you for having me, guys. It's appreciate yeah, it. I know you have a terrible taste in uh, whey protein flavours. <laughs> I'm the whey cool, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I have something to say about that. It's true. She know. drinks pea protein sometimes. <laughs> oh, I have an ethical dilemma with dairy consumption. And so I'm a dairy and meat reducer, not because I think it tastes better, but it just no. sits with my heart a bit nicer. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, do you know what? I completely, completely... I was going to say identify, but I don't identify with it because admittedly I make no ethical consideration, but I do understand it and respect it greatly. It's something that I should do. You know, when you just kind of switch off to things and choose not to pay attention. Yeah. Admittedly, that's what I'm guilty of for sure. So Occasionally you know. I'll have some Chobani yogurt because the macros are great and it tastes fantastic. And mm. I kind of ignore my heart a little bit there. So I hear you. But for me, like I don't drink a protein shake because it tastes great. I drink it because of it's great macros and it's convenient. So I may as well just pinch my nose and swallow a pea protein shake. Whatever, it's fine. Mm. I don't know how you don't eat cream of rice though. That's just like a, or like I don't know how I'd go. Like, that's I'd like my rice pudding. pudding. Oh. yeah. I just call it rice pudding, but cream of rice. Yeah. What do you have for a sweet meal? I don't have a sweet meal because I'm a sixty kilo female and I can't really afford a whole meal that's sweet. But <laughs> I eat um, chocolate every night. Okay. Chocolate is her thing, and she would also die for potatoes. Yeah. Any, anything that's potato. It's true. Anything potato. But in terms of sweet, I really like Peter's light and creamy. It's a low fat ice cream. So no. I can do a few fistfuls of that or, or a protein bar. Look, I sound like I'm boring and I hate food, but I just uh, hate being overweight. So I, do, I have to just tame the beast. <laughs> so a couple squares of chocolate. I couldn't not have my half kilo yogurt with cereal every yeah. day, you know. I look at Dean in envy with his giant bowl of cereal and like the whole box of. Mm-hmm. You got you got to get on checks though, man. Checks are better than cocoa pops. They they're like, doing like they're made by like cocoa pops. Let me say no, 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 no. You sent me these the other day. Are they the ones that look like little pillows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're way crunchy. Yeah, they're crisscross pillows. Yeah, I eat them. They're over here. They're choco wheaties. <laughs> How different we are. Are they, are they Kellogg's though? No, I get I get mine from Aldi because I'm cheap. Mm, we do some we do some Aldi stuff too. I, yeah. I like Aldi honey wheats. But anyway, we'll, we'll wrap this up. Thanks everyone for listening. We know where to get you. We find everyone, and uh, we'll uh, be in your ears another week, yep. another time. Mm-hmm. Two weeks from now. <laughs> See you. Bye.